0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain, and for more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Luoma, Green K R I dot com. Moll Flanders, by Daniel Defoe. Section seven. But I come now to my own case in which there was at this time no little nicety. The circumstances I was in made the offer of a good husband the most necessary thing in the world to me. But I found soon that to be made cheap and easy was not the way. It soon began to be found that the widow had no fortune, and to say this was to say all that was ill of me, for I began to be dropped in all the discourses of matrimony. Being well-bred, handsome, witty, modest, and agreeable. All which I had allowed to my character, whether justly or no is not the purpose, I say, all these would not do without the dross, which way now become more valuable than virtue itself. In short, the widow, they said, had no money. I resolved, therefore, as to the state of my present circumstances, that it was absolutely necessary to change my station and make a new appearance in some other place where I was not known, and even to pass by another name if I found occasion. I communicated my thoughts to my intimate friend, the captain's lady whom I had so faithfully served in her case with the captain, and who was as ready to serve me in the same kind as I could desire. I made no scruple to lay my circumstances open to her. My stock was but low, for I had made but about five hundred and forty pounds at the close of my last affair and I had wasted some of that. However, I had about four hundred and sixty pounds left, a great many very rich clothes, a gold watch, and some jewels, though of no extraordinary value, and about thirty or forty pounds left in linen not disposed of. My dear and faithful friend, the captain's wife, was so sensible of the service I had done her in the affair above, that she was not only a steady friend to me, but knowing my circumstances, she frequently made me presents, as money came into her hands, such as fully amounted to a maintenance so that I spent none of my own. And at last she made this unhappy proposal to me, viz that as we had observed, as above, how the men made no scruple to set themselves out as persons meriting a woman of fortune, when they had really no fortune of their own, but it was just to deal with them in their own way, and if it was possible, to deceive the deceiver. The captain's lady, in short, put this project into my head, and told me if I would be ruled by her I should certainly get a husband of fortune, without leaving him any room to reproach me with want of my own. I told her, as I had reason to do, that I would give up myself wholly to her directions, and that I would have neither tongue to speak nor feet to step in that affair but as she should direct me depending that she would extricate me out of every difficulty she brought me into, which she said she would answer for. The first step she put me upon was to call her cousin, and go to a relations house of hers in the country, where she directed me, and where she brought her husband to visit me. And calling me cousin, she worked matters so about, that her husband and she together invited me most passionately to come to town and be with them, for they now live in a quite different place from where they were before. In the next place she tells her husband that I had at least fifteen hundred pounds fortune, and that after some of my relations I was like to have a great deal more. It was enough to tell her husband this. There needed nothing on my side. I was but to sit still and wait the event, for it presently went all over the neighborhood that the young widow at Captain something or others was a fortune— that she had at least fifteen hundred pounds, and perhaps a great deal more, and that the captain said so. And if the captain was asked at any time about me, he made no scruple to affirm it, though he knew not one word of the matter other than that his wife had told him so. And in this he thought no harm, for he really believed it to be so, because he had it from his wife. So slender a foundation will those fellows build upon, if they do but think there is a fortune in the game. With the reputation of this fortune I presently found myself blessed with admirers enough, and that I had my choice of men, as scarce as they said they were, which, by the way, confirms what I was saying before. This being my case, I, who had a subtle game to play, had nothing now to do but to single out from them all the properest men that might be for my purpose that is to say, the man who was most likely to depend upon the hearsay of a fortune, and not inquire too far into the particulars. And unless I did this, I did nothing, for my case would not bear much inquiry. I picked out my man with much difficulty by the judgment I made of his way of courting me. If I had let him run on with his protestations and oaths that he loved me above all the world, that if I would make him happy that was enough? All which I knew was upon supposition—nay, it was upon a full satisfaction that I was very rich, though I never told him a word of it myself. This was my man. But I was to try him to the bottom, and indeed in that consisted my safety. For if he balked—I knew I was undone, as surely as he was undone if he took me. And if I did not make some scruple about his fortune— it was the way to lead him to raise some about mine. And first, therefore, I pretended on all occasions to doubt his sincerity, and told him perhaps he only courted me for my fortune. He stopped my mouth in that part with the thunder of his protestations, as above, but I still pretended to doubt. One morning he pulls off his diamond ring, and writes upon the glass of the sash in my chamber this line, "'You, I love—' and you alone. I read it and asked him to lend me his ring, with which I wrote under it thus, And so in love says every one. He takes his ring again and writes another line thus, Virtue alone is an estate. I borrowed it again and I wrote under it. But money's virtue, gold, is fate. He colored as red as fire to see me turn so quick upon him, And in a kind of rage he told me he would conquer me, And writes again thus, I scorn your gold, and yet I love. I ventured all upon the last case of poetry, As you'll see, for I wrote boldly under his last. I'm poor. Let's see how kind you'll prove. This was a sad truth to me. Whether he believed me or no, I could not tell. I suppose then that he did not. However he flew to me, took me in his arms, and kissing me very eagerly, and with the greatest passion imaginable, he held me fast till he called for a pen and ink, and then told me he could not wait the tedious writing on the glass, but, pulling out a piece of paper, he began and wrote again, Be mine with all your poverty. I took his pen and followed him immediately thus. "'Yet secretly you hope I lie.' He told me that was unkind, because it was not just, and that I put upon him contradicting me, which did not consist with good manners, any more than with his affection. And therefore, since I had immensely drawn him into this poetical scribble, he begged I would not oblige him to break it off. So he writes again. Let love alone be our debate. I wrote again. She loves enough that does not hate. This he took for a favor, and so laid down the cudgels, that is to say, the pen. I say he took it for a favor, and a mighty one it was, if he had known all. However, he took it as I meant it, that is, to let him think I was inclined to go on with him, as indeed I had all the reason in the world to do, for he was the best humoured, merry sort of fellow that I ever met with, and I often reflected on myself how doubly criminal it was to deceive such a man. But that necessity which pressed me to a settlement suitable to my condition was my authority for it. And certainly his affection to me and the goodness of his temper, however they might argue against using him ill. Yet they strongly argued to me that he would better take the disappointment than some fiery-tempered wretch who might have nothing to recommend him but those passions which would serve only to make a woman miserable all her days. Besides, though I jested with him, as he supposed it, so often about my poverty, yet when he found it to be true, he had foreclosed all manner of objection, seeing, whether he was in jest or in earnest— he had declared he took me without any regard to my portion, and, whether I was in jest or in earnest, I had declared myself to be very poor, so that, in a word, I had him fast both ways. And though he might say afterwards he was cheated, yet he could never say that I had cheated him. He pursued me close after this, and I saw there was no need to fear losing him. I played the indifferent part with him longer than prudence might otherwise have dictated to me. But I considered how much this caution and indifference would give me the advantage over him, when I should come to be under the necessity of owning my own circumstances to him. And I managed it the more warily, because I found he inferred from thence, as indeed he ought to do, that I either had the more money or the more judgment, and would not venture at all. I took the freedom one day, after we had talked pretty close to the subject, to tell him that it was true I had received the compliment of a lover from him—namely, that he would take me without inquiring into my fortune, and I would make him a suitable return in this, viz. that I would make a little inquiry into his as consisted with reason. But I hoped he would allow me to ask a few questions, which he would answer or not as he thought fit and that I would not be offended if he did not answer me at all. One of these questions related to our manner of living, and the place where, because I had heard he had a great plantation in Virginia, and that he had talked of going to live there, and I told him I did not care to be transported. He began from this discourse to let me voluntarily into all his affairs, and to tell me in a frank, open way all his circumstances by which I found he was very well to pass in the world. But that great part of his estate consisted of three plantations, which he had in Virginia, which brought him in very good income, generally speaking, to the tune of three hundred pounds a year, but that if he was to live upon them would bring him in four times as much. "'Very well,' thought I. "'You shall carry me thither as soon as you please, though I won't tell you so beforehand." I jested with him extremely about the figure he would make in Virginia, but I found he would do anything I desired, though he did not seem glad to have me undervalue his plantations, so I turned my tail. I told him I had good reason not to go there to live, because if his plantations were worth so much there, I had not a fortune suitable to a gentleman of twelve hundred pounds a year, as he said his estate would be. He replied generously. He did not ask what my fortune was. He had told me from the beginning he would not, and he would be as good as his word. But whatever it was, he assured me he would never desire me to go to Virginia with him, or go thither himself without me, unless I was perfectly willing and made it my choice. All this, you may be sure, was as I wished, and indeed nothing could have happened more perfectly agreeable. I carried it on as far as this, with a sort of indifferency that he often wondered at, more than at first, but which was the only support of his courtship. And I mention it the rather to intimate again to the ladies, that nothing but want of courage for such an indifferency makes our sex so cheap, and prepares them to be ill-used as they are. Would they venture the loss of a pretending fop now and then, who carries it high upon the point of his own merit? they would certainly be less slighted and courted more. Had I discovered really and truly what my great fortune was, and that in all I had not full five hundred pounds when he expected fifteen hundred pounds, yet I had hooked him so fast and played him so long that I was satisfied he would have had me in my worst circumstances. And indeed it was less a surprise to him when he learned the truth than it would have been because, having not the least blame to lay on me, who had carried it with an air of indifference to the last, he would not say one word except that, indeed, he thought it had been more, but that if it had been less he did not repent his bargain, only that he should not be able to maintain me so well as he intended. In short, we were married, and very happily married on my side, I assure you, as to the man. For he was the best-humoured man that every woman had, but his circumstances were not so good as I imagined, as, on the other hand, he had not bettered himself by marrying so much as he expected. When we were married I was shrewdly put to it to bring him that little stock I had, and to let him see it was no more. But there was a necessity for it, so I took my opportunity one day, when we were alone, to enter into a short dialogue with him about it. "'My dear,' said I, "'we have been married a fortnight. Is it not time to let you know whether you have got a wife with something or with nothing?' "'Your own time for that, my dear,' says he. "'I am satisfied that I have got the wife I love. I have not troubled you much,' says he, with my inquiry after it." "'That's true,' says I but I have a great difficulty upon me about it, which I scarce know how to manage." "'What's that, m' dear?' says he." "'Why,' says I. 'Tis a little hard upon me, and tis harder upon you. I am told that Captain something or other—meaning my friend's husband—' has told you I had a great deal more money than I ever pretended to have, and I am sure I never employed him to do so." "'Well,' says he, "'Captain something or other may have told me so, but what then? If you have not so much, that may lie at his door, but you never told me what you had, so I have no reason to blame you if you have nothing at all.' "'That is so just,' said I and so generous, that it makes my having but a little—a double affliction to me." "'The less you have, my dear,' says he, "'the worse for us both. But I hope your affliction you speak of is not caused for fear I should be unkind to you, for want of a portion. No, no, if you have nothing, tell me plainly, and at once. I may perhaps tell the captain he has cheated me. But I can never say you have cheated me, for did you not give it under your hand that you were poor? And so I ought to expect you to be." "'Well,' said I, "'my dear, I am glad I have not been concerned in deceiving you before marriage. If I deceive you since, tis ne'er the worse. That I am poor is too true, but not so poor as to have nothing neither so I pulled out some bank bills, and gave him about a hundred and sixty pounds. "'There's something, my dear,' said I, "'and not quite all, neither.' I had brought him so near to expecting nothing, by what I had said before, that the money, though the sum was small in itself, was doubly welcome to him. He owned it was more than he looked for, and that he did not question by my discourse to him but that my fine clothes, gold watch, and a diamond ring or two had been all my fortune. I let him please himself with that hundred-sixty pounds two or three days, and then, having been abroad that day, and as if I had been to fetch it, I brought him a hundred pounds more home in gold, and told him there was a little more portion for him. And in short, in about a week more, I brought him a hundred-eighty pounds more and about sixty pounds in linen, which I made him believe I had been obliged to take with the hundred pounds which I gave him in gold, as a composition for a debt of six hundred pounds, being little more than five shillings in the pound, and overvalued, too. And now, my dear," says I to him, "'I am very sorry to tell you that there is all that I have given you my whole fortune. I added that if the person who had my six hundred pounds had not abused me, I had been worth a thousand pounds to him, but that as it was, I had been faithful to him, and reserved nothing to myself. But if it had been more, he should have had it. He was so obliged by the manner, and so pleased with the sum, for he had been in a terrible fright, lest it had been nothing at all, that he accepted it very thankfully, and thus I got over the fraud of passing for a fortune without money, and cheating a man into marrying me on the pretense of a fortune, which by the way I take to be one of the most dangerous steps a woman can take, and in which she runs the most hazard of being ill-used afterwards. My husband, to give him his due, was a man of infinite good nature, but he was no fool and finding his income not suited to the manner of living which he had intended, if I had brought him what he expected, and being under a disappointment in his return of his plantations in Virginia, he discovered many times his inclination of going over to Virginia to live upon his own, and often would be magnifying the way of living there—how cheap, how plentiful, how pleasant and the like. I began presently to understand this meaning, and I took him up very plainly one morning, and told him that I did so. That I found his estate turned to no account at this distance, compared to what it would do if he lived upon the spot, and that I found he had a mind to go and live there. And I added, that I was sensible he had been disappointed in a wife, and that finding his expectations not answered that way I could do no less to make him amends then tell him that i was very willing to go over to virginia with him and live there he said a thousand kind things to me upon the subject of my making such a proposal to him he told me that however he was disappointed in his expectations of a fortune he was not disappointed in a wife and that i was all to him that a wife could be and he was more than satisfied on the whole when the particulars were put together but that this offer was so kind that it was more than he could express. To bring the story short, we agreed to go. He told me that he had a very good house there, that it was well furnished, that his mother was alive and lived in it, and one sister, which was all the relations he had, that as soon as he came there his mother would remove to another house, which was her own for life and his after her decease, so that I should have all the house to myself and I found all this to be exactly as he had said. To make this part of the story short, we put on board the ship, which we went in, a large quantity of good furniture for our house, with stores of linen and other necessaries, and a good cargo for sale, and away we went. To give an account of the manner of our voyage, which was long and full of dangers, is out of my way. I kept no journal, neither did my husband. All that I can say is that after a terrible passage, frighted twice with dreadful storms, and once with what was still more terrible—I mean a pirate who came on board and took away almost all our provisions, and which would have been beyond all to me—they had once taken my husband to go along with them, but by entreaties were prevailed with to leave him. I say, after all these terrible things, we arrived in York River in Virginia and coming to our plantation, we were received, with all the demonstrations of tenderness and affection, by my husband's mother that were possible to be expressed. We lived here altogether, my mother-in-law, at my entreaty continuing in the house, for she was too kind a mother to be parted with. My husband, likewise, continued the same as at first, and I thought myself the happiest creature alive when an odd and surprising event put an end to all that felicity in a moment, and rendered my condition the most uncomfortable, if not the most miserable, in the world. My mother was a mighty cheerful, good-humoured old woman. I may call her old woman, for her son was above thirty. I say she was very pleasant, good company, and used to entertain me, in particular with abundance of stories to divert me, as well as of the country we were in as of the people. Among the rest, she often told me, how the greatest part of the inhabitants of the colony came thither in very indifferent circumstances from England; that, generally speaking, they were of two sorts: either, first, such as were brought over by masters of ships to be sold as servants-"such as we call them, my dear," says she; "but they are more properly called slaves;" or, secondly, such as are transported from Newgate and other prisons, after having been found guilty of felony and other crimes punishable with death. When they come here, says she, we make no difference. The planters buy them, and they work together in the field till their time is out. When tis expired, said she, they have encouragement given them to plant for themselves, for they have a certain number of acres of land allotted them by the country, and they go to their work to clear and cure the land, and then to plant it with tobacco and corn for their own use. And as the tradesmen and merchants will trust them with tools and clothes and other necessaries, upon the credit of their crop before it is grown, so they again plant every year a little more than the year before, and so buy whatever they want with the crop that is before them. Hence, child, says she, "'A man a Newgate bird becomes a great man, and we have,' continued she, "'several justices of the peace, officers of the trained bands, "'and magistrates of the towns they live in that have been burnt in the hand.' "'She was going on with that part of the story when her own part in it interrupted her, "'and with a great deal of good-humoured confidence she told me "'she was one of the second sort of inhabitants herself.' THAT SHE CAME AWAY OPENLY HAVING VENTURED TOO FAR IN A PARTICULAR CASE, SO THAT SHE WAS BECOME A CRIMINAL. "'And here's the mark of it, child,' says she, and pulling off her glove. "'Look ye here,' says she, turning up the palm of her hand, and showed me a very fine white arm and hand, but branded in the inside of the hand, as in such cases it must be. This story was very moving to me, but my mother, smiling, said—' You need not think a thing strange, daughter, for, as I told you, some of the best men in this country are burnt in the hand, and they are not ashamed to own it. There's Major So and so, says she; he was an eminent pickpocket; there's Justice Ba, mr; there's Justice Ba something er, was a shoplifter, and both of them were burnt in the hand; and I could name you several such as they are. We had frequent discourses of this kind, and abundance of instances she gave me of the like. After some time, as she was telling some stories of one that was transported but a few weeks ago, I began in an intimate kind of way to ask her to tell me something of her own story, which she did with the utmost plainness and sincerity—how she had fallen into very ill company in London in her young days occasioned by her mother sending her frequently to carry victuals and other relief to a kinswoman of hers, who was a prisoner in Newgate, and who lay in a miserable, starving condition, was afterwards condemned to be hanged, but, having got respite by pleading her belly, dies afterwards in the prison. Here my mother-in-law ran out in a long account of the wicked practices in that dreadful place, and how it ruined more young people than all the town besides." And child," says my mother, perhaps you may know little of it, or, it may be, have heard nothing about it. But depend upon it," says she. We all know here that there are more thieves and rogues made by that one prison of Newgate than by all the clubs and societies of villains in the nation. "'Tis that cursed place," says my mother, that half peopled this colony. Here she went on with her own story, so long and in so particular a manner, that I began to be very uneasy. But coming to one particular that required telling her name, I thought I should have sunk down in the place. She perceived I was out of order, and asked me if I was not well, and what ailed me. I told her I was so affected with the melancholy story she had told, and the terrible things she had gone through, that it had overcome me and I begged her to talk no more of it. "'Why, my dear,' she says very kindly, "'what need these things trouble you? These passages were long before your time, and they give me no trouble at all now. Nay, I look back on them with a particular satisfaction, as they have been a means to bring me to this place.' Then she went on to tell me how she very luckily fell into a good family, where, behaving herself well and her mistress dying, her master married her, by whom she had my husband and his sister, and that by her diligence and good management after her husband's death she had improved the plantations to such a degree as they then were, so that most of the estate was of her getting, not her husband's, for she had been a widow upwards of sixteen years.' I heard this part of the story, with very little attention, because I wanted much to retire and give vent to my passions, which I did soon after. And let any one judge what must be the anguish of my mind when I came to reflect that this was certainly no more or less than my own mother. And I had now had two children, and was big with another by my own brother, and lay with him still every night. End of section seven.